as we continue our series, uh, our Journey to the Cross series, and uh, today we're privileged with another guest. Uh, we have Dr. Mark Genelette, who is an Associate Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School, and uh, he teaches Old Testament classes, is taught Hebrew, teaches biblical theology, and uh, I was privileged to have him as my faculty mentor during my time at Beeson, and so uh, we're in for a treat again today as he uh, continues uh, this series for us in John's Gospel. But let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for this week and uh, the significance of the events that we remember this week. And Lord, we do pray that uh, you would speak to us now, Lord, as we pause to look at your word, to reflect on you, uh, to journey to the cross with Christ. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in us, and it's in Jesus' name I ask and pray these things. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, during this Holy Week, we're reminded collectively as your people that we really don't have anything else to cling to but the old rugged cross. And Lord, I pray during our time this morning that you would lift high your cross and lift high your son, we would see him. And in light of that, I pray, Lord, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's a real privilege for me to be with you all today. Um, I'll say that um, and this is going to be a little bit nostalgic and paternal, but I've been at Beeson Divinity School now for 10, almost 10 years, which is hard to believe. It's hard to believe, isn't it, unless I see my colleague here. Um, and one of the great joys that I have now is to see our graduates actually outdoing uh, the work of the ministry. So seeing Chris and then Ben, who was here earlier, it's a, it's a real privilege to be with you today. Um, My task this morning is John chapter 17. So if you have Bibles, we'll sort of look at this a little bit. I'd like to um, read you a quote from one of my favorite theologians, uh, Willie Nelson. We're in the South, we consider him a borderline theologian. I mean, few people are are capable of soothing sin-sick souls like old Willie. Well, here's here's a song that I um, don't like to admit to how often I've listened to it, but I'll read the lyrics to you. Uh, It's entitled, I've Been Too Sick to Pray. I've been too sick to pray, Lord. That's why we ain't talked in a while. It's been some of them days, Lord, when I thought I was on my last smile. But I'm feeling okay, Lord, and I'm glad that I called you today. Never needed you more, would have called you before, but I've been too sick to pray. Remember the family, Lord. I know they will remember you. In all of their prayers, Lord, they talk to you just like I do. I reckon that's all, Lord. That's all I can think of to say. Thank you, my friend. I'll be talking again when I'm not too sick to pray. Oh, Willie, so simple and so honest. How about you? You ever been too sick to pray? Are you too sick to pray? Few subject matters, at least within my own Christian journey, are more guilt-ridden and burdensome than the topic of prayer. 
If you want to get Christians feeling guilty real fast, talk about their prayer lives. I'll certainly add my name to the list of Christians who struggle with prayer and coming to terms with it, meandering thoughts, flashing to-do lists, pressing emails. They all create a mental and a spiritual crowd, often too sick to pray. But Jesus, on the other hand, seems to be praying all the time. Um, This week, as a kind of family uh, Holy Week discipline, um, and I hope this isn't offensive to anyone, but we've been watching uh, Franco Zeffirelli's 1977 Jesus of Nazareth together. So I'm forcing my nine-year-old, my seven-year-old, and my four-year-old son. They're not all too happy about this, actually, but we're watching this, and and I'm just reminded, even watching this movie this week, as it pertains to the Gospels, that Jesus stops all the time to pray. Matthew 14 says, after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And then when evening came, he was there all alone. Do you remember that strange scene in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, right at the beginning of the Passion Narratives? So here Jesus is talking about the coming breaking in of the kingdom of God, and he breaks his thought mid-sentence, and he looks right at Peter. It's only recorded in Luke. And he looks right in Peter's eyes, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That scene only recorded in Luke floors me every time I read it. Two little verses in Luke's gospel, but whose force kind of shift tectonic plates. I mean, can you imagine Peter's response? Uh, Come again, Lord, thanks for praying, but what exactly did Satan ask about? He wanted what? I mean, Peter knew his job. He certainly knew that it wasn't beyond God to say to Satan, have at him. But I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed for the resolve of your faith, Peter. I've interceded for you. You're going to be okay. Strengthen your brothers when all this ordeal is over, Peter. Jesus prays in John's Gospel too, apparently where you have been in study for some, a few weeks now. In the section referred to by a lot of Bible people uh, as the farewell discourse, or in more pedestrian terms like I would like to use, I call this section John chapter 14 through John chapter 17, Jesus breaks the bad news. I'm leaving. (laughs) So in this I'm breaking the bad news section, there's a wave that's building like an ocean. It's building and it's building till it it crests, until it spills over, releasing its, its pressure. In other words, this farewell discourse is moving somewhere. Think about John chapter 14. I have it here if you have yours with you. Have you already preached this, by the way, for all this course? Okay. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I'd have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, Jesus reminds them that he is the true vine, and they are the branches. If they remain in him, they'll bear a lot of fruit. He says in chapter 16, uh, I have bad news for you. The world hated me, and it's going to hate you too. 
I'm going to leave, and it's going to cause sorrow. Jesus tells them that. Jesus is honest. He's painfully honest. And then we move into chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. So all of these chapters, 14, 15, and 16, are building like a wave. And on my reading, and I think this is the way in which John has shaped his gospel, Chapter 17 is the pinnacle of the farewell discourse. The wave releases at this point in John's gospel. When Jesus had spoken these words, John chapter 17, verse 1, he lifted up his eyes to the heavens and he said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus prays. The shape of the discourse moves us to what I think is the ultimate message of John's gospel, and that is, or at least in the farewell discourse, and that is, when I'm gone, you can be assured of many things. You can be assured the world's going to hate you. You can be assured that I will send my Holy Spirit who will be among you. But you can be sure of one thing in particular, and that is, I'm praying for you. Jesus is praying for his disciples. The night before Jesus dies... I mean, think about it this way. The night before Jesus dies, the last thing that he does for his disciples and for his people is to pray for them. That's the last thing that he does. Do you mind if I slip into just academic theological speak for one second, and then I'll come back to reality. Um, When we speak about Christ's atoning life and death for us, we use language, language at least that's familiar within my theological tradition, of the active and the passive obedience of Jesus. Now, when you think, I mean, this is, to me, at the heart of the gospel. Jesus died for us. We're going to see that. That's what this week's all about. We're moving to Good Friday, where we remember that Jesus died for us. That's his passive obedience. That's Jesus going to the cross and taking his own judgment onto himself for you and for me. Jesus comes into the Gospels and he announces the kingdom of God. That is an announcement of judgment. And as the narrative moves on in all of the Gospels, but especially John's, we see that Jesus, the active judge, becomes in time the passive recipient of his own judgment. That, by the way, is the surprise of the Gospel. It's not a surprise to see Jesus cleansing a temple. We would expect when Yahweh, when the God of the Old Testament returns to Israel, he promised, I'm going to cleanse the temple. I'm going to clean my temple. And there's Jesus doing it. I mean, the Pharisees got that. That's why they were so upset with Jesus. They knew what he was doing. But the surprise of surprises to see Yahweh enfleshed, the God of the Old Testament enfleshed, now moving down the Via Dolorosa to a cross to bear his own judgment on his own shoulders for you and for me. He becomes the judge who's judged in our own place. That's his his passive obedience. He takes it on for us. But his active obedience is something that we don't reflect on, I don't think, enough in, in the evangelical church today. And that is not only did Jesus die my death for me, but Jesus lived my life for me too. In other words, my obedience isn't enough, but his is. My faith is small, but his is great. My faithfulness is minuscule, but his was sufficient. That's why we see Jesus going out into the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights. And what do we see? Him coming out of the wilderness victorious, unlike old Israel, who struggled in the wilderness, who succumbed to temptation. 
Jesus comes out of the wilderness victorious. He's living our lives for us. So if I can use those terms before you, active and passive obedience, the last thing that Jesus does in his actively obedient life for you and for me is that he prays. And that he prays for you and he prays for me. the, the, The weight of that, I think, needs to sit on us. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven in John chapter 17 in this high priestly prayer. And Jesus prays for himself. Father, I'm going to reveal your glory. Father, now the time is for me to reveal your name. Which is an interesting thing, isn't it, for Jesus to say? To reveal your name? I mean, of course they knew the name of Yahweh. They knew that four-letter Hebrew name that was specific to their God. They knew that. But here Jesus is revealing the character of the divine name. The name that's attached to his own redemption. They're going to understand you, God, in a way they have never understood before when I reveal your glory. When I reveal the glory of the cross. So Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples who are right there. They hear him pray. And then when you move down to verse 26, lo and behold, Jesus is actually praying for you and for me. The night before Jesus dies, Jesus prays for those who would believe on the basis of the word of the apostles, of his disciples. And he prays for us. Now there's a lot in here worth reflecting on. A great deal. But I'm not as interested in our small amount of time that we have together, I'm not as interested in unpacking the content of John 17 as I am emphasizing the fact that Jesus is praying. And if I can press it just a little bit further for you this afternoon, I would also want to emphasize from this text, and I think from John's gospel, that we're often working with a double layer of a narrative. In other words, Jesus really did pray. I believe this recounts for us a historical moment in Jesus' life. At Passover, when he's breaking bread, when they're drinking wine, and he lifts his eyes and he prays. I believe that really happened in time and space. But I also believe that this text here records for us something that preserves for us our understanding of who Jesus is now. It's an indication of what Jesus is doing right now. As one old dead theologian, and they tend to be the best, by the way, the dead ones. But as one old dead theologian said, Jesus does not sit idly in heaven. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, what's Jesus doing now? What's he doing in his ascension now before the throne and eternal communion between the Father by the Spirit and the blessed unity of the Son? I mean, what's Jesus doing now? And I believe that this text here gives us some indication. It's This is a holy moment text. We've seen Jesus praying a lot. But to actually have the veil of heaven torn back for us just for one chapter where we actually see an inner Trinitarian communication between the Son to the Father by the Spirit. Do you see what's happening here? God's talking to himself. Jesus is praying to the Father by the Spirit. And you and I, because of the gift of Holy Scripture, get to read it again and again. We get to be spectators in a moment that collapses eternity into time and time into eternity. It's astounding what we're seeing here. Jesus is praying to the Father by the Spirit. 
And it's an indication for you and for me of what Jesus is even doing right now. I mean, I, I'm thinking I don't want to get too theology speak here. But you know, Jesus is a man right now. And your whole salvation depends on that. Mine too. He's fully God. He's fully man right now. I, I was reading in one of in the journal this morning, the Wall Street Journal, a, a review of a new book that's come out on physics and particular neurons. And I mean, it's crazy how these physicists are talking about flip sides of reality. I mean, I, it blows my mind. My, my, my mind begins to smoke when I read this stuff. But here we have an understanding that Jesus in his reality now as a man, fully God, fully man, prays for us right now. In other words, part of Jesus' isness, part of his being right now is that he as a man prays for you to the Father. I can't tell you how significant this simple theological truth from God's word has been in my life and in the life of my own family. The reality that Jesus prays for me. Especially in those moments when Willie Nelson is right. I'm just too sick to pray. I mean, think about that. Even now, Jesus prays for your church. And he knows about this place and the people who are here and your pastoral staff. And Jesus is praying. I mean, if we take Romans chapter 8 and other texts as well and sort of bring this together in a larger motif, we begin to see that even the Spirit groans on our behalf. Why? Because we don't even know really what to say. I mean, one of the great comforts that I have even in my own prayer life is, and and you take this as well and chew on this if you will, but you pray whatever you want to 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 God. Why? Because Jesus takes that and, for lack of a better term, cleans it up and presents it to the Father by the Spirit on your behalf. We have a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When you stand at a tomb or in a cemetery and the timing's not right, when hope for the future seems hard to get a hold of, when the planned children that you thought you were going to have turn out not to be the children you were going to have, when marriage becomes difficult, as all of them do, my wife and I in our own moments, and I want to encourage this for you as well, the moments have been multiple now where the simple prayer that comes off of our lips on the basis of John 17 is, Jesus, please pray for me. Jesus, please pray for my nine-year-old William. Pray for him. He's not very self-aware. Pray for him. Lord, please pray for my church. Jesus, pray for, and the list goes on and on. Because in those moments when we're not too sick to pray, And in those moments when we are too sick to pray, the one thing that you can be assured of as a child of God is that Jesus Christ, right now, before the throne, to the Father, and by the Holy Spirit, he knows your name, and he's praying for you. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for being with us today and for reminding us from the Word of God about our Savior who prays 
on our behalf, who knows us and prays for us. I want to leave us today with uh, a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that uh, was written with Wednesday of Holy Week in mind. And then um, after I read this prayer, I want to invite you to leave the sanctuary today in a contemplative state of prayer yourself. Lord God, whose blessed Son, our Savior, gave his body to be whipped and his face to be spit upon, give us grace to accept joyfully the sufferings of the present time, confident of the glory that shall be revealed through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns.